The Tom Woods Show, episode 1737. Prepare to set fire to the index card of allowable opinion. Your daily dose of liberty education starts here. The Tom Woods Show. Hi, everybody. Tom Woods here, talking to Bob Murphy. So great to talk to Bob Murphy. Bob and I used to have our own podcast together. We did that for about five years, and then we thought, "Ah, I'm sick and tired of talking to you. And that's not really the case. Bob had his own show all of a sudden, The Bob Murphy Show, and then he was doing three podcasts, and something had to give. So we're doing our own shows now, but we have each other on. Well, I think he's had me on once. I've had him on about 117 times, but all the same, Bob is back on the show. You remember all Bob's credentials, PhD in economics from New York University, written a million books, including his widely acclaimed book, Choice, Cooperation, Enterprise, and Human Action, which is kind of a distillation of the ideas in Ludwig von Mises' book, Human Action, but it really is a wonderful smaller treatise in its own right. And when I say widely acclaimed, you should look at the pages and pages and pages of blurbs for this book. It's amazing. I mean, it's it's people who, who can't stand each other all agree that Bob's book is fantastic. I've never seen anything like it. It's absolutely great. So Bob's got all these tremendous credentials. And among many other things, he's the host of The Bob Murphy Show, which you can check out at bobmurphyshow.com. Bob, welcome back. Thanks for having me, Tom. It's been a long time, especially with no Contra Krugman anymore. It has. I was going to say to you, I, I noticed in my life, and I'm sure you have as well, that I, I don't miss the fact that I don't read Krugman's column every week. I don't miss that, but I, I do miss our frantic efforts to throw something together at the last minute. That was always fun. Anyway, uh, let's talk about your Understanding Money Mechanics series for the Mises Institute, where people are basically watching you write a book in real time. And wow, is it a necessary book? And maybe I'm going to steal your thunder here by kind of explaining to people why it matters. But among other things, I would say this. When you look at the classic Austrian treatises, you look at human action, man, economy, and state, you, you get a very, very good understanding of money. But then if you look at a modern economics textbook and you look at the, the technical details of how the Fed works and stuff like that, it's not stuff that's covered at all in those texts. There's really nothing, very, very little about that in those texts. And there's a lot of terminology that you do not encounter in our foundational texts. And you're filling in those gaps so that we have an Austrian treatment that does include all this material and that does give our perspective on all of it. Am I getting the idea? I think, so thank you. And I think you're right that that's one idea, but, um, and I should mention that this, you know, Jeff Dice was the one who pitched this idea to me and, you know, I said, oh yeah, this, this sounds like a great idea. So it was, it was his idea that I should work on this. And I think though, partly Tom, where he was coming from is a lot of people are not going to read Man, Economy, and State, especially that's if they're not, thing. Yeah, yeah. If they're not already Rothbardians. And so if we want, you know, if we need the Austrian perspective to go toe to toe with MMT or whatever. We have to have something that's easier for people to get the the essentials down. And that's- yeah, but but you know, but but also something that expressly addresses MMT. Like in other words, if you have a really good Misesian Rothbardian background, you can probably tease out what the argument against MMT has to be. Mm-hmm. But if I'm in a hurry, I'd rather just read what is the argument against MMT, and <laughs> I'd rather have it less uh, roundabout. Right, right. That that as well. So so yes, it's a, you're right that the. I guess what's different from this, like, oh, gee, I already read Man, Economy, and State. What's new in here? There's nothing that contradicts it, obviously, but that, yeah, a lot of the stuff I'll take particular arguments. And we, I have a whole section 
where I'm dealing with objections, for example. So that's certainly something that you wouldn't see in man economy and state because it's I'm responding to people who don't like man economy and state. Yeah, and these are some of these are objections that are of quite recent origin. So by the way, whatever project you're working on, if you want me to come and explain to you what the ultimate significance of it is, you feel free anytime. <laughs> you just stop, I stop right on by. <laughs> right. Well, it's good because that, that way too, if you happen to like it, then I don't sound like a jerk that you're the yeah. one who can say yeah, 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 yeah. Works, works out for everybody. All right, let's start with uh, one thing that I actually saw you say somewhere online that when you were working on stuff relating to the history of the gold standard in the U.S., you were actually learning stuff you didn't know before. And that intrigued me. What did Bob Murphy not know that's of value to us? Okay, so in here, it's uh, what the chapter title is, A Brief History of the Gold Standard with a Focus on the U.S. And so when I you know, was brainstorming, okay, what kind of things do we need to cover? So clearly, you know, we have to have that in there because I think that's partly why modern Americans and you know, people around the world don't have any idea of what sound money is because they grew up in a world based on you know, government-issued fiat currency and they don't have that history. And so... I th what happened, Tom, what I meant by saying that is, you know, I ended up, I always heard people referring to like, you know, oh, William Jennings Bryan wanted the free coinage of silver and, you know, there was bimetallism and there was, and I, that stuff was always, I never had the time to go read enough to know exactly what they were talking about. And so I didn't right. fully understand that, that stuff. And, and, and by the way, let me add, I think most historians writing about it, like in textbooks, mm -hmm. they don't really get it either because they haven't delved into any of the real sources. They don't really understand what it's about other than they think the silver people must have been the good guys and the gold standard people were the evil rich people. That's as far, I mean, I'm not kidding you. That is as right. far as they know. Well, and it's, what's funny too though, Tom, is because when you read Rothbard, you know, in his history, there is a sense in which the people pushing for the gold standard were the sinister ones. You know, not, not that he, Rothbard was for you know, oh, let's go ahead and just keep creating silver to ease the farmer's debts. But it, it's funny, when I went to read Rothbard's, you know, his background and what was happening, I was assuming all the gold people were going to be the good guys and it wasn't, it didn't line up that way either. It was, you know, so anyway, it was very interesting. It wasn't what I expected. But specifically on this, um, what I was, and I, I guess I should say, Tom, too, part of the problem is if historians don't know monetary theory, how could they possibly you know, adequately describe what's going on, you know, right. during the Jennings, Bryan, McKinley campaign, things like that, because they, they just don't know. So partly what, what I meant was that up till I did the research for this chapter, you know, he would ask me, oh, what's going on with the gold standard? I think I probably would have said, oh, the, you know, the two big events, the things to focus on were how, you know, Roosevelt first took the U.S. off and then, you know, what Nixon finally came in and did. And with this chapter that I did here for the Mises Institute book, it was, I bear, I mean, those were almost, I had to include them, obviously, but that was just things right at the end of the chapter. I spent the bulk of the time explaining what was going on, you know, before the Civil War, the bimetallism period, and how all that worked. Because to me, that was the interesting thing that, for example, I think, and I used to think this, that a lot of people nowadays, even fans of the gold standard, have this idea that, oh yeah, the U.S. government, from the moment the Constitution was ratified, was issuing green pieces of paper with presidents on them, which would be difficult because they wouldn't know, you know, who, whose face should we put on these things yet. And, but they were like, there was a pledge that, oh, you turn these green pieces of paper in, and then you get a certain amount of gold or silver. And, and that's not what it was. Originally, no, it, US dollars were in gold and silver coins. Like, so, a, you know, a $10 gold coin, for example, or a $1 or a 50 cent piece in silver. And that's what the money was. It wasn't until the Civil War when the U.S. federal government actually started printing, you know, they called them greenbacks, things that nowadays we would think of as U.S. currency up to, you know, so that 
and, and that wasn't just a, an, an accident. The founders had seen with their own eyes the inflation during uh, the Revolutionary War, that you know, that phrase, not worth a continental, referring to the continental currency. And so the idea was they wanted gold and silver coins out there so that any transaction could be conducted literally just with coins. That you know, for more expensive things, you'd use the gold, and then for smaller stuff or change, you'd have this, the silver pieces. And so I, that was something that I didn't fully appreciate until doing this, that it, our notion of what does it mean to have a gold-backed currency Back then, like people literally had gold and silver coins in their pockets walking around going to the store. It wasn't just that, oh yeah, the paper the government prints, they promised to back it up if you turn it in. That was something that came later in the process of weaning people off of hard money. Well, let me ask you the the key thing about gold and silver. We have no particular opposition. If, if the issue simply is allow gold and silver to circulate as money, well, stated that way, we have no problem. But there's no way that that could be the, the whole issue because then why would it be portrayed as a way of easing the burden on, on uh, you know, the, the poor and downtrodden? Was it that they wanted to fix the two coins at, a, at an unreasonable ratio so that people could pay off debts in, in, you know, basically not enough money in effect? I mean, what was the real issue there? Okay, great question. And so, yeah, so the well, what happened was Originally, the dollar was defined as a certain weight of gold or silver, right? And so in terms of like, you know, uh, grains of, of the pure quantity of, of each one. And it worked out that it was, depending on the time period, like 15 and a half or 16 or 15 to one in terms of, you know, the, the weight of silver you would need to equal $1 versus the, the physical weight of gold. Okay. And so that was, like I said, it, it wasn't, that's try, what I'm trying to get people to realize too is, it wasn't like nowadays if the Fed promises or pledges, I should say is a better term, that, oh, we're going to try to keep you know, price inflation between 1% and 2%. It wasn't that back then they were saying, you know what, we're going to try to issue U.S. dollars such that the, the gold price is, falls in this range. No, the dollar was defined as that. So if you want, went in with a certain amount of raw gold or silver, like they would physically stamp them into coins for you. Okay. And so the quantity of dollars was not set by the authorities. The, instead, the authorities were basically setting what the price of a dollar was in terms of gold or silver. And then people themselves determined the quantity. So they had at some point suspended what was called the free coinage of silver, meaning they announced, you know what, from now on, if you bring us raw silver, we're not going to turn it into US dollars. Well, you know, coins stamped with the appropriate denomination on them. We're going to discontinue doing that. And so what is more and more countries did that, and this would be like in the in the uh, late 18, like after 1870 and onward, the world price of silver fell, you know, relative to gold and other commodities because fewer and fewer governments were using silver as the money. And so if you just think about it, Tom, so what would happen then if all of a sudden, like William Jennings Bryan, his campaign to reintroduce the free coinage of silver, what that meant was they were going to resume the policy, you know, if he got his way, where people would go to the U.S. authorities, give them you know, raw silver, and they would take it and stamp it into more U.S. dollars, for example, like, you know, a coin, a $1 piece made out of silver. So that would be increasing the number of dollars. So that would cause price inflation measured in dollars. So if you were a farmer and you had a mortgage on your farm denominated in dollars, by reintroducing the free coinage of silver, that would effectively be allowing for the creation of a lot more dollars. Because what's going on is the, the price that they, that they had had on the books originally silver was no longer worth that much in the world market. So in other words, 
the amount of silver you would need to be stamped into a US dollar was not worth $1 if you just sold it raw on the open commodity markets. So it would be, it would be a way of, there would be a lot of silver that would flow into that outlet if, if Brian's policy had been reintroduced until they had created enough new dollars consisting of silver coins that the purchasing power of the dollar had weakened enough so that now the, you know, it, it fell to what the world price of silver was, if, if that makes sense. So it was just a way of allowing citizens to create more dollars. And so that's so, the sense. Okay, so is it obvious then that the average person benefited in some way? And if the average person benefited, was he benefiting at the expense of the rich or his employer or something? You're saying if they had allowed that policy to go through? Yeah, yeah, exactly. If 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 William Jennings Bryan had gotten his way, let's say. Right. By, by the way, just for the I know you know this, Tom, but for the benefit of the listeners, don't be confused. So he he lost, folks. This was uh, what was the time? Was it the 1896? Yeah, uh, yeah. Election? There was never yeah. a President Bryan, and, and, <laughs> yeah. and he tried several times, even yes. from prison. <laughs> yes. Um, and so it's in that. So it was that campaign, and he had his famous cross of gold speech at the Democratic convention when you know they nominated him. So that that's the election. So that's the period that we're oh, talking but, about. But by the way, I don't know why I was thinking of Eugene Debs. Obviously. Obviously, Brian was never in prison. So there was no part of American history that you missed. It's just, um, I wake up at 6.30 now to take my kids to school and it's pretty brutal. So I'm, I'm sorry I made that mistake. Well, I know. I was thinking like, well, I know he resigned. But yeah, I don't remember. Yeah, that, yeah, he resigned over the, uh, you know. Did the, that S.O.B. Wilson throw him in jail? Yeah. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> he thought Wilson was was heading toward war, and so he resigned. But you you don't actually get imprisoned for resigning. All right, let's 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 uh, okay. let's let's go on. So, so yeah, so if you're asking Tom, like, what would have been the effects of, of he had gotten that through? So certainly there would have been a, an immediate redistribution that, from creditors to debtors, because anybody, you know, with a with an unexpected price inflation, the people who owe debts denominated in the currency, you know, they experience a relative easing and the, the creditors get hurt. But I, as with any kind of inflation, you know, I think it's, there's, there's more sinister consequences. So it would set in motion, depending on the specifics, the Austrian boom-bust cycle, for example. And um, so just in general, you know, just to say, oh, what if we just allowed the debasement of the currency every five years? Would that help poor people? I, I would say no. That yeah, the, the, there might be some effects that directly help them in terms of easing their debt. But on the other hand, it would. And of course, there are plenty of lower income people who are frugal and who would have had savings, and they would have, you know, they would have been the creditors that would have been hurt too. So I don't think we should, you know, buy into this notion that all the people who have savings are rich people and all the debtors are poor people. There's plenty of spendthrift upper income people too who have who are carrying a lot of debt for example let's go on i got a couple more uh topics i want to hit that are covered in this extremely expansive would be and eventually will be book because this is one that i've encountered myself i get people saying oh gosh you you austrians are so living in the past with your analysis of how banking works it doesn't work like that if it ever did it doesn't work like that anymore so for example they'll say banks are not actually constrained by reserves. Like we've got this formula where, you know, banks have to keep such and such reserve and then they create credit on top of the reserves and all that. And you get, I've gotten this on my blog and, and repeatedly, oh, you stupid fools, that's not how it works anymore. So is that the kind of thing you're addressing in that section? Yeah, precisely, right. So, um, so yeah, there's a, there's a chapter, folks, that's said, do, do the textbooks get money in banking backwards? 
And you're exactly right, Tom. Um, and, th- and this was something that over the years I had noticed. Like I would get just at the beginning seeming cranks, you know, emailing. And, and by the way, that not that there's a, anything wrong with that, folks. Some of my best friends are cranks. Yeah, but, he, he's talking to one of them right now. <laughs> <laughs> but, but yeah, saying, hey, this conventional. So the conventional story which very quickly is to say, oh, uh, and, and this isn't just an Austrian thing. This is how you know, any money in banking textbook would have explained this stuff from a few decades ago is to say, oh, uh, the way that like the central bank eases, like the, we're talking about the US, the Federal Reserve goes and they buy assets in the open market and then that adds reserves to the banking system. And then because there's a reserve requirement that allows you know banks who had originally been fully quote loaned up, now that they have more reserves, those are now excess reserves and they can go and lend out, let's say, you know, a, a multiple, you know, 10 times when the system settles down of the new reserves that were injected because of the fractional reserve nature. You know, you get an extra thousand dollar deposit, the bank can lend out 900 of it. And then, you know, that someone else in the community deposits the 900 in his bank. And so then their bank can lend out, you know, 90%, da, 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 and it just keeps going on. So that's the, that's the conventional story. And so the idea there is the, the spirit of it is the banks are sitting around waiting for the Federal Reserve to come along and inject new reserves before the banks can then make more loans. And so it's so the critics say that is, if anything, backwards. Regular commercial banks, they will argue, they don't even care what their reserves are because they'll go, you know, somebody applies for a loan, the loan officer doesn't call the home office and say, hey, do we have any excess reserves or do we have to wait for the Fed to do an open market? No, they'll just say, is this a good loan or not? And then they'll go ahead and make it. And if the bank then realizes, uh-oh, we don't have enough reserves to meet our reserve requirements, they'll go out into the federal funds market and borrow the reserves they need. And then you say, well, okay, but what if there's not enough for the system as a whole? And they'll say, oh, well, then the Fed will provide more reserves. You know, so the Fed sort of passively reacts. And, and so that's, you know, the, the Fed is, it's like business decisions that drive, that push the Fed's hand or, or force the Fed's hand. It's not the Fed running the show. So that's the kind of thing they'll get. And so if that, you can see how, geez, yeah, that, if anything, that seems like it's the exact opposite or backwards from what you would read in a standard money and banking textbook. So what I do in the chapter, Tom, is try to say they're actually both correct ways of describing what would happen based on your assumptions about what's fixed or not. So if, if what's fixed is the quantity of reserves in the system, like if the Fed just going to stay still and they're not going to buy any more assets, then things proceed exactly the way this, you know, the orthodox textbooks describe. The banks can only lend up to a certain amount. There's reserve requirements. Banks, commercial banks, don't have the legal ability to create reserves. Only the central bank can. And so if there's not enough reserves to go around, then they can't make more new loans. That you, you could say, oh, they can go borrow it from somebody else. But then that means that bank that lent it doesn't have those reserves, right? So that's correct. However, if what instead you're going to say is suppose what the Fed is doing is just setting like a target for the federal funds rate. Like maybe the Fed's going to say, we want the federal funds rate to be like 3%. What that actually is, that interest rate is saying that's the interest rate that commercial banks pay on overnight loans of reserves. And so if you think that through, what would happen then is let's say all of a sudden the commercial banks see a bunch of good lending opportunities. And so they want to make more loans. And then they're scrambling now to get those scarce reserves to, you know, to be able to satisfy their legal reserve requirements. That's going to push up the federal funds rate, right? As more of them are scrambling to borrow those limited quantity of reserves. So then the Fed saying, oh, gee, we had a target of whatever I said, 3%. And now the federal funds rate is 3.5%. We got to go in and push that back down to our target. And so how do they push it down? They buy more assets, they inject more reserves into the system. Okay. So 
what I'm saying, Tom, is it is true that you can imagine if the Fed's behaving in a way, if they're targeting the, you know, the, this particular interest rate, which in practice in normal times, at least before all this QE stuff, is how they operated, at least on a day-to-day basis in terms of how they couch their policy, then there is validity to the way that you know, these critics explain the process. But on the other hand, there's nothing wrong with what the Orthodox textbooks say. Again, it just, it just matters as to you know, what, do you think, what do you think drives the Fed's behavior? And that, yes, if they don't want that federal funds rate to go above a certain level, then they are going to push it down. But the way they push it down is by doing exactly what the Orthodox textbooks said they did. Hey, folks, let's take a quick break to thank our sponsor, Hydrant. I told you a story in my episode on public speaking tips about something really, really awful that happened to me relating to dehydration. This is serious stuff, folks. Drinking enough water really is critical for a healthy lifestyle, and it's very easy not to do so unless you're doing it really consciously. But at the same time, hydrating yourself shouldn't be a chore. And thanks to Hydrant, which helps you hydrate faster, it's a joy. Hydrant has created a refreshing electrolyte powder that you mix directly into water to more efficiently and effectively hydrate your body. Each rapid hydration mix has the four essential electrolytes your body needs, sodium, potassium, magnesium, and zinc, and it packs a punch to help your body hydrate fast and stay hydrated. The formula was developed by an Oxford scientist. It's also loved by pro athletes, top performers, celebrities, and has thousands of five-star reviews. It's made with real fruit juice powder. It's delicious and refreshing. Comes in a variety of flavors. I happen to like iced tea lemonade, but there's also fruit punch, blood orange, and a lot more. Delicious, refreshing, and I feel great. We got a special deal for our listeners to save 25% off your first order. Go to drinkhydrant.com slash woods or enter our promo code WOODS at checkout. That's D-R-I-N-K-H-Y-D-R-A-N-T dot com slash WOODS and enter promo code WOODS for 25% off your first order. Drinkhydrant.com slash WOODS and enter promo code WOODS to save 25%. And we thank them for sponsoring the podcast. Okay, now let's turn to the final thing. And I know you're, I know you don't want to talk about this. I totally understand. You're sick and tired. Nobody at this point wants to talk about it anymore. But unfortunately, we are living at a time when not only is modern monetary theory gaining adherence and attention just for whatever reason of its own accord, but the particular circumstances in which we're living seem to be exactly ones in which they would be able to hawk their wares effectively because they would say, well, obviously we're living through an emergency and obviously you know, if we're going to sit around and pretend that the government is constrained in its spending, we're going to cause all kinds of major social problems. So it's a good thing we have modern monetary theory in order to undo some of the superstitions that partisans of, you know, supporters of austerity have put in your heads, that namely that the government does operate under certain financial and resource constraints and blah, blah, blah. Well, we're here to tell you that that's not the case and so on and on. Now, I know I'm not... I'm not actually even trying to state what modern monetary theory is, but that's the popular level version that is without a doubt being communicated to people. That really it's all all that is holding us back from accomplishing what we need is just will, is political will. There are no other constraints other than political will. Now, that that may be a controversial statement. Would you say that that's what an MMTer would say in this situation? I think so. Um, I mean, yes, so they certainly wouldn't be afraid to say any of the things you just said there. I think their distinctive trademark is certainly what Stephanie Kelton does is 
is they want to say, oh, the modern political discourse is so sophomoric and just misguided. Everyone keeps talking about how are we going to afford, you know, the Green New Deal or, or healthcare for everybody or whatever. And that's, they're saying that's just totally the wrong way to look at it. The U.S. government has a printing press. And moreover, you know, most of the debts that it owes are denominated in dollars. So there's no question that they can, quote, afford anything they want in the sense of, are we going to be able to come up with enough dollar bills to satisfy our creditors? The only constraint they'll say is, yeah, if you print too many of those things, then prices are going to rise too much. Don't get us wrong. It's not like it's a, you know, we can have anything we want, but let's stop using the wrong terminology. The issue is not, can we afford this? The issue is, if we did have the government purchase this or finance it, would that cause, you know, unacceptable resource constraints or, you know, log jams elsewhere that would cause prices to shoot up too much? So, that's true insofar as it goes, but it, it's sort of like, you know, normal Orthodox economists, I think our reaction to that is, well, right, we never deny that you had a printing press. In fact, we spend a lot of time denouncing that, <laughs> you know, and that's a, and I'm sure you remember this too, Tom. I mean, growing up in the sort of free market tradition, it was standard where economists would say things like, hey, there's only three ways the government can can pay for something. You know, don't don't think you get something for nothing. The government either taxes you, borrows, which is kind of like future taxation, or they print money, which is sort of like hidden taxation, right? Those are the only three ways government can finance anything. So when you ask for the government to give you something, just keep in mind, it's basically taking it from you in the first place. So, you know, that was standard stuff. So this idea that the MMTers are going to come along and let us know, hey, instead of taxing and borrowing, don't you realize there's a printing press sitting over here? Why don't we use that? Like, yeah, we, we know that. And we know what the downfall is that it causes prices to rise. So, it's uh, and this is why MMT. Like I understand, its fans are they'll always say, "Oh, see, everybody agrees that what we're saying is correct. They just don't like it." And you know what I mean? Like I, I get why they they're saying that. It's very rhetorically effective. But what we're saying is, yes, what you're saying is something that we knew all along, and it's not a solution. Yeah. So now that's that's exactly what people need. By the way, what you just said, because you could argue all day long with an MMT person. You could be arguing technical details all day long. It's the bird's eye overview of what the problem with it is that people generally need. The average person who's not going to study economics in any detail just wants to know what's the bird's eye view? What is it that they're missing? How are they looking at the world that's causing them not to see what I see, right? So I mean, so what's the pithiest answer to these people are claiming that my concerns are absolutely unfounded and amount to a complete misconception of the whole nature of the world. How, how, could, how could I be so wrong? I mean, I, right. it doesn't feel like I'm saying anything unreasonable. So, I mean, let's even nail it down even further. What's the pithiest kind of response that can buck up the, the courage of that guy and say, you know, you know, I was right the first time. Okay, so I, I think that besides just like, you know, them sort of coming at it from a different angle and, and saying things that, yes, technically it's true from an accounting sense and we just disagree about the implication. I, I think what's really driving the difference and why they think pointing out these truisms about, hey, don't you know the U.S. government never needs to default? They can always just print more $100 bills. Why they think that's such an important insight to the budget debates is they think there's a lot of slack capacity, especially in recent times where they're like, look at all the QE the Fed's done. And it's, you know, gasoline's not $10 a gallon. So what are you guys talking about? Clearly, we have a lot of, you know, a huge margin where the, the authorities could create trillions more dollars 
without causing any noticeable price inflation at the store. And then you could get trillions of dollars of more stuff. So, so, I th- so that's what, th- what they think. Whereas, you know, typical Austrians don't think anything like that. They think, you know, you're printing that money, no matter what CPI is doing, you're clearly redistributing away from the private sector to the people who are the recipients of that new money, number one. And so you like ethically, that's, you know, indefensible redistribution of, of wealth or property titles. But beyond that, depending on how the new money enters the system, it might set in motion the standard Austrian boom-bust cycle. So they're they're not seeing that. And then I, if you might remember, Tom, I had Warren Mosler, who's like one of the modern founders of MMT on my show. And I tried to get him to, you know, I wasn't debating him. I just wanted to understand. And I was saying like, so if we were going to finance, you know, colonizing Mars or something, like, do you think there's all these free resources just sitting around the slack and that we could just go ahead and do that? Or would that cause, and he, he didn't necessarily say whether he could go to Mars or not without causing any prices to rise, but he definitely had this idea that there's a lot of unused capacity in the system right now. And the MMT approach would unleash, you know, the, the policymakers and uh, give them the freedom to spend money that would not cause any down or, you know, any unintended consequences elsewhere in the system. So I think that's part of it. So besides there, the thing we agree with them on that, yes, the government can just print money if it wants to finance things that way. And then you don't need to worry about quote paying for something. They think that, there's this huge slack physically in the system where a lot of people could go back to work and a lot of resources could get deployed to create things that society wants without having to reduce other things that society is currently getting out of the economic system. And so to them, it's like a, you know, a a win-win or a free lunch. Does that mean that MMT applies only under particular conditions? Okay. So great question. So I mean, formally, no, like in other words, the, just like a theorem is true, whether or not the initial conditions are satisfied, you know. So it's not that MMT would be wrong. They would say if you didn't have those, but they would say, oh, if you're at a resource constraint, you know, if already if price inflation starting to rise, like in Zimbabwe or something, it's not that MMT is wrong in Zimbabwe. They would just say no. What MMT teaches is you got to ease up on the printing press once you see prices go through the roof. So they would still say MMT is correct. You know, the Zimbabwean authorities can go ahead and pay defense contractors or whoever, you know, people run soup kitchens with Zimbabwe notes because they can just print more. But once that hyperinflation gets underway, then yep, clearly you guys now have a real resource problem and you got to, you got to ease up on that. So I think maybe what you're, what if you're trying to relate it, Tom, that, you know, somebody like Krugman, the way he distinguishes himself from MMT is he'll say, oh, we Keynesians know that when you're in a liquidity trap, all the rules go out the window. And the budget deficits are expansionary and you know, there's no crowding out and blah, blah, blah. But once we're out of the liquidity trap, then the Keynesians, Krugman says, sound more like orthodox, you know, sound like Casey Mulligan or somebody, Newt Gingrich. Whereas the MMT people, Krugman thinks they're just, they think it's always like this. And so that's, that's yes and no. And I asked um, Warren Mosler about that. I think Krugman's largely correct that the MMT people, even though they do acknowledge that, yes, formally, there could be a scenario where we would say, let's stop printing money because now we're, we've hit the resource constraint. In practice, they don't, they don't view it as something that just happens every once in a while during a bad business cycle, the way the, the Keynesians do. That it, it is this, this recurring feature that the, the, you know, the system carries a lot of slack with it based on you know, the silly uh, in, institutions we have in place. 
Well, I'm going to stop there, even though obviously we could go on and on and on, but I, I don't want to do that to you. It's not fair. You've already written all this stuff out. So I'm going to direct people to the Understanding Money Mechanics series. It's so good. And the chapters yet to come look absolutely great. I don't really want to read any more books these days. I read enough books for the doggone podcast as it is, but I am definitely going to be reading this one very carefully. I'm very eagerly awaiting its release. So I'll link to the whole thing at tomwoods.com slash 1737. And I know you are an insane, you're a busier guy than I am, Bob. So thanks for being with me today. Thanks for having me, Tom. Okay, folks, as we wrap up for the weekend, boy, have I got something interesting for you. Now, this website by a Tom Wood Show listener was created by somebody who was dismissed as a classroom teacher. He taught at a Catholic school and he said some things about the pontificate of Pope Francis that a lot of people have said. And he got in trouble for this because you can't, you could, you could criticize the previous two popes, no problem. They're not going to raise any objection to that. But you can't criticize Pope Francis because that is not allowed. So he had his opposition to progressive Catholicism, such as it is, and they didn't much care for that. So he wound up being dismissed. And he tells a story, but his website goes way beyond that. All kinds of interesting posts on a variety of topics, a lot of stuff in libertarianism. But then you look at under the category, my work, and then you go to books. He's got a couple things that I know you're going to be curious about. One is a guidebook through modern European history, 1400 to 2015, which would be useful for anybody, but particularly other teachers. And then another one, a Catholic prep school teacher's notes on American history. Great resources. And the website is, it's called Hot Water History, but the URL is hoth2ohistory.com. So hoth2ohistory.com is our listener website of the day. I'll link to it at tomwoods.com slash 1737. And of course, you get all this wonderful publicity for yourself if you go to tomwoods.com slash publicity before you start your website. And you'll see how you can get publicity from me and other free bonuses all by just getting your hosting through my link. You got to get hosting anyway. You're going to get a great price through me and you're going to get all these great bonuses. So hello, go ahead and do that. Tomwoods.com slash publicity is where the details are to be found. Have a good weekend, everybody. Become a smarter libertarian in just 30 minutes a day. Visit Tomwoods.com to subscribe to the show for free and we'll see you next time. Like the sound of The Tom Woods Show? My audio production is provided by Podsworth Media. Check them out at podsworth.com.